Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Virginia Pye about her book, River of Dust. This exquisitely written debut novel opens in northwest China in 1910 among a small colony of Protestant Christian missionaries from the United States. The two main characters, Grace and her husband, whom she calls the Reverend, have just arrived at their vacation house in the country with their little boy, Wesley. Since this is a novel, what happens next will change their lives. But like all of us, Grace and the Reverend as yet remain unaware of the future that awaits them along the river of dust. Let me set the stage for you by reading the opening pages. The Reverend loomed over the barren plain. He stared at the blank horizon as if in search of something, although to Grace's eyes nothing of significance was out there. Sunset burned his silhouette into a vast and gaudy sky. Standing tall in his long coat on the porch above his wife and son, he appeared to be a giant, grand and otherworldly. Perhaps this was how the Chinese saw him, she thought. Her husband spread his arms toward the blazing clouds and shadowed flatlands, as if to say that all this was now in the Lord's embrace. The breeze shifted, and billows of smoke circled their way. Grace watched the reverend's outline waft and shimmer. She would not have been surprised if his body had gone up in flames right there before her eyes, ignited in a holy conflagration with only a pile of ash left behind to mark his time on this earth. Grace shook the strange notion from her mind, although she wondered how so good a man could appear so sinister in such glorious light. As he started down the porch steps, Grace roused their sleeping child from beside her on the seat of the backboard. We're here, she whispered, our sweet vacation home. The boy opened his pale blue eyes and blinked. How would it appear to someone so young, Grace wondered? Desolate or full of potential? She could not know. The Reverend lifted the boy from her arms and swung him high on his shoulders, Wesley's favorite perch. He rubbed his cheeks and surveyed the endless plain. If you look closely, you can see all the way to the Great Wall, the Reverend said, and beyond it the Ming tombs and the enormous sand statues of Buddha that defy all belief. Then come the tribal provinces and the vast Gobi Desert that stretches on and on, further than you can imagine. I have seen it all, and I promise to take you there some day. Wesley squinted into the slanting sun. That would be marvelous, Grace said. She slipped her hand into her husband's to step down from the wagon, and they proceeded on the rutted road. "'I'm afraid that you will find the countryside here far from marvelous,' the Reverend said. "'It is too dry and forlorn to be called pretty. "'I hope, though, that it will grow on you. "'In the fall and spring the light turns a most remarkable bruised shade at the end of day "'when the morning doves return to roost in the willow trees. "'You are waxing poetic again, Reverend.' Forgive my enthusiasm for boulders and scrub brush. There's no need to convince me. I have all faith that you have chosen well for our respite. 
Then, as they arrived at a narrow stream with a tree hanging over it, Grace took a seat on a rock and added, I can see that this willow alone is reason for a visit. The Reverend reached a hand toward her hair and patted it kindly. Your forbearance is remarkable in someone so young. In all ways, you suit your name. Grace blushed, which she knew was quite ridiculous. He was her husband and father of her child. Still, it was hard not to think of him as her master in matters of the soul, which were the only matters of consequence. Even after marriage, she continued to call him reverend as she always had, and he never dissuaded her. That only seemed right. And now, please join me in welcoming Virginia Pye. Hi, Virginia. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. Um, A few months ago, I was talking to Virginia about her book, uh, River of Dust, on Goodreads, the Internet Book Club, when I discovered that I had actually known her father years ago uh, when I was fresh out of college and working in the MIT libraries. I'm not so sure he knew me, (laughs) Um, but uh, I was kind of hanging around the political science department where I met my husband, and so I would see him at functions and see him in the library and so on and so forth. Lucian Pai was a well-known sinologist and political scientist who grew up in China with missionary parents. And my husband's dissertation advisor, it turns out, uh, dandled Virginia on his knee, uh, figuratively speaking, when she was a child. I don't think I knew you, Virginia, uh, when I you were a child. I think so, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't recall. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so your dad always looked like John Wayne to me. In fact, he was sort of unofficially known in the department as John Wayne. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> yes, yes, I have heard that more than once. He um, he was six foot four inches tall, and that that may have helped. I that. think it did, right? Yeah. Um, so he must really have stood out when he was on his visits to China. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and growing up there as well. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I suspect that he didn't expect to raise a novelist. Um, tell us about yourself and how that came about. Well, um, you know, my parents read all the time, and um, every uh, they had books open on every surface in the house. And um, my father, like his father before him, um, had a book with him at all times. And um, that sort of influence, uh, you know, sort of seeps in, I think. And um, my mom was a great reader and an editor. She edited my father's books. Um, He wrote over 20 books on China and Far East Asia and really was a, you know, an expert sinologist, um, having grown up there. And... um, and so while I wasn't drawn to the social sciences so much, um, I started writing my own journals and poetry at about age 10, and I just kept writing them. And uh, by the time I reached high school, I had the notion that I wanted to be a writer, and so I would wake up before school and uh, sit at my desk at about 5 a.m. and had no idea what I was doing. Um, I don't, I, it's a very hard thing to figure out how to translate, you know, impressions of the world that you express in little snippets of poems and journals into something that's truly a story and that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, my teachers in high school didn't really know what to do with my impulse to write either. Um, uh, they were really encouraging, but um, it took actually going to college and uh, luckily enough getting into a couple of writing classes with Annie Dillard. Um, I was at Wesleyan University and first was in a poetry class with her and then segued over into a fiction class where she uh, was very sure that that was a better fit for me. Um, 
and um, and I studied with her for at least a full year with fiction. And um, one semester, I worked uh, the whole time on a single story that was called The Loss of North China. And it came sort of out of the blue. I had never written about China before. I'd always written about things that were more immediate to my life. But this is a story set in 14th century China. Um, I happened to be taking a Chinese history class at the time. And it was about a profligate um, prince who ends up being murdered by one of his servants. And I was influenced by Italo Calvino and Raymond Carver. And so it was very minimal and weird. And Annie Dillard loved it and coaxed me through many, many, many drafts um, with her comments in the margins. And I learned an enormous amount from that one story um, and really learned how to take a story from a really crappy first draft all the way through to giving it some structure and and finishing something. And um, so that was really my first indication of how to actually take the impulse to write to actually becoming a writer. And um, then I went on to graduate school. I've got an MFA from Sarah Lawrence and was lucky enough to study with Alan Greganis and Joan Silber and Chuck Wachtel. And, um, you know, the teaching of writing is back then anyway, was such a haphazard business um, that they just passed on all of their wisdom as best they could. And then you, you just try really hard to, to make sense of it for yourself. Um, so I, I worked hard in those two years on a novel that um, I ended up getting a really top-notch agent for, um, somebody who was really quite famous in her business. And um, I was thrilled and kind of mystified, and I sort of thought my future was made by this, and um, unfortunately, she did not place that novel. Um, she tried about a dozen or half dozen places and then returned it to me, and that was when I began the long saga of um, how to be a professional novelist without having a book sold, and uh, I carried that on for many, many years uh, through having children and teaching writing to others, and um, actually five full novels, uh, three of which were represented by agents who tried to sell them, um, until finally I wrote River of Dust. And um, so it's been a long maturation process and a long learning process, and I I think of it as sort of an apprenticeship to finally produce a book that's really, um, you know, fully formed. Um, Not not an easy thing to write a novel. So um, that's that's how this, uh, this book came about. Yeah, that's wonderful. So that's really a a, um, a lesson in perseverance that you just kept working at it. Uh, what kept you going in all those years when you were producing novels that didn't sell? Well, um, I was also writing short stories, and I have to say the market for selling literary short stories is every bit as hard as selling novels. Um, they, the, I would go to these panels, and the editors of literary magazines would blithely say that, you know, 1% of the percent of the submissions they get, um, they send back any kind of written response, and, you know, half of 1% actually make it in. And so I, I understood the odds. Um, and, um, you know, it really was just something that I loved to do. And I kept persisting and came up with different novel ideas. And, you know, once I was in the in the throes of working on something, you know, that's not the arduous part. It's wonderful. It's great fun. Um, although the book, um, just previous to River of Dust, um, 
was a story of, it was a novel called Sleepwalking to China, and I had worked on it for about five years, or maybe even more than that. And um, it actually told the story of three generations of an American family with ties to China. And this is where the first time I, I uh, had gone back to the whole idea of China ever since uh, the, the, the Annie Dillard short story that I'd done back in college. So this is like 30 years later, I, I finally decided to tackle the, the China legacy. And um, this is a novel that I wrestled with and went through 21 drafts of, and many, many agents saw it and, and were excited by it. Um, um, but in the end, um, the, the story, that novel started out with uh, a missionary couple, um, and then a, their child, uh, their son, ends up uh, being a Marine that goes back to China after World War II, as my father did. And then the next generation ends up, uh, the son ends up at the fall of Saigon. And uh, my notion with that book was to try to capture in the sort of hundred years of, of from 1900 to the year 2000, um, sort of the arc in American family from a colonial perspective of the missionary grandparents to the post-Vietnam, um, very, very different attitude of the, you know, the most recent generation. And um I, I, you know, also tried to show the the way that China had changed as well, and um, so anyway, it had a lot of promise and and all of that, and I I worked on it for like I said many many years, and um, people weighed in, and uh, there was a lot that was good about that book, but in the end, I had to abandon it and chose instead to tell only the story of the missionary couple. And I focused exclusively on one year in their lives and a very dramatic year with a kidnapping beginning at at the very beginning of the book. Um, And yet I tried to infuse this book that was only about the missionaries with all the ideas that I had developed over the years about colonialism and about how, um, uh, you know, America had changed and the effects of American imperialism and um, all of these sort of notions um, into this other story. And this became River of Dust. Um, and a year ago, this past April, I sat down on April 1st to write this new novel that was going to be uh, sort of tightly told just uh, about this one year in this missionary couple's life. And on April 23rd, I finished it. And it was a miraculous sort of 23-day whirlwind of writing, which was River of Dust. And um, the person who had advised me to focus uh, exclusively on the missionaries and to sort of throw my all into just their story, um, I was so excited that I showed it to her. She got so excited that she showed it to her editor and in a little over a month, I had sold my first novel. Wow. <laughs> and it was miraculous. The whole thing was miraculous um, after those many, many years of, of writing previous novels and, uh, you know, being in the trenches in a way, um, to then be sort of given this gift of, of River of Dust and, um, and having it be taken so quickly was just, you know, the whole thing was amazing. So That's a wonderful him, story. Yeah, it's it's quite thrilling. And to have an editor take a first draft was insane. I, I never would have left had a first draft go out the door. But my friend literally wrenched it from my hands, insisted that I 
send it, push the send button, and um, sure enough, he accepted it. And uh, my editor at Unbridled Books, um, and I was really honored. So um, after the 21 drafts of that previous novel, the one that was about the 100-year arc of a you know, American family connected to China, uh, this, this is really something. So. Well, in a sense, it's not a first draft, though. I mean, <laughs> it grew. I mean, it's a first draft of the new version, but it is. I'm, I'm sure it drew on those 21 previous drafts, and it... it did. It did in some sort of mysterious way. I mean, mm-hmm. it was only technically only the first 20 pages and the last 20 pages of River of Dust are from the previous manuscript. So everything else was brand new, um, new plot, new characters. You know, the whole thing. But I got. Um, you know, the mind and the imagination work in sort of mysterious ways. And uh, all of the kind of wrestling that I had done with my family's past, um, you know, worked their way into this new manuscript. So, Well, the results are wonderful. And I'm sure that people who have heard me read the beginning realize that your prose is just gorgeous. Um, uh-huh. I absolutely love the exploration of the character's thoughts, which rings so true. Um, and not just true to the characters themselves, but they feel like, people who are living in that time and place. Mm. Um, Thank you. So I was going to say that I was guessing that you're a character first writer, but I'm not sure that that's true. Maybe that you worked them out during the, the work for the previous novel. What do you think? Um, a character first. No, I'm a, <clears throat> I think that this book ended up being, um, and, and I think in general, I tend to start with a setting in my mind. Um, but, but this book, you know, is based very much in character. And, um, one of the advantages of it over that previous book is that I really zeroed in on four main characters. Um, it almost could be a play in a way. It's just four characters, an American missionary couple and their two servants, one elderly man named Acho and the, um, nursemaid, uh, named Mei Lin. And, um, you know, there are a few other minor characters, but um, I really got to uh, focus in on these four, and, and the story is told uh, with different chapters from their different perspectives. And um, I was able to use that um, to be able to show different parts of the plot where one person was, but not, you know, a different character, um, but also very, very different perspectives on the world that they were living in. Um, and I, you know, got to exploit that, I think, through those four characters. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the characters. Let's start with Grace, since it seems to me to be really Grace's story in the sense that she's there at the beginning, she's there at the end. And even mm-hmm. though the story goes back and forth among these other characters, uh, she seems to be kind of the linchpin of the story. Yes, yes, I I think so too. And um, the Reverend, her husband, is a more dramatic character. And um, as was often the case in marriages then, and just in the world at that time, and um, you know he was the more dominant one for sure, um, the public figure. Um, but it's Grace's progress that I think um, she shows the most uh, um, advancement uh, in her response to these dire things that happen to her, um, she moves forward and her character changes, um, which, um, you know, is, is always admirable in a person or in a character. Um, so tell so us I, about her. Who is she? Well, Grace is a Midwestern young woman 
who um, has seen this uh, reverend, young man, uh, or he's, he's older than her, actually, um, and has been touched by his fiery uh, speech and um, the cause of the missionaries who have gone to China after the Boxer Rebellion. So this story takes place in 1910, and um, as a reminder, the Boxer Rebellion took place in 1900, and it was when the Chinese nationalists, uh, peasants, particularly in the northern part of China, where this story takes place, um, wanted to rid the country of uh, foreign influence and uh, economic influence, but they also had notions about how the foreigners were responsible for the drought and the bad weather as well. And um, it was sanctioned by the government at that time, and they literally, you know, massacred many um, European and Americans. Um, and so I learned about this because my grandfather actually um, was sent to China in 1907 to shut down the mission compound in Shanxi province and um, because everyone there had been massacred. Um, but instead, in 1907, he decided to stay, and uh, for the next 15 years before his death, he built it many times over. And um, so I learned about that through his papers. And um, but um, but anyway, but back to Grace's story. See, isn't that interesting that I would veer off into the the man's story because, in a way, it's more dramatic. Um, but. Um, her story is is sort of of someone who um, is smitten with this uh, charismatic uh, religious husband of hers and uh, trusting of him in a sort of very old-fashioned way, um, believing that he is sort of the keeper of her soul in some way. Or um, And yet, bit by bit, she starts to realize that actually, in a way, she may be the more level-headed thinker and uh, that she needs to sort of trust her own judgment in many things. And as the story progresses, um, she has to make some very difficult choices that um, that she can't rely upon him at all to to help her make. Um, and so, I think that that's not uncommon for women of that time, or maybe even today in some ways, uh, where there's a sort of practicality to what she needs to to do. And uh, that um, you know, even though she may have been smitten with her husband, that she understands that it it all comes down to her in the end. So. so was that what made it easy? I mean, was that what drew you to her? Because she is a very, I mean, she has to be in 1910, um, a very unmodern woman in her approach. And yet she, she does, how should I put this? She, you know, in the end, she does get there in a sense, you know, she, she in, in a, in a non-modern way. I mean, I write pre-modern women too, so I'm constantly, mm-hmm. You don't want to make them too feminist or, in other ways, unbelievable for their time, and yet you don't want a character who just kind of sits there and sews either. So, right, right. Um, yeah, I think that she, um, you know, there's sort of an ingenue quality about her. You know, sort of starry-eyed, thinking that somehow, not that her life there would be glamorous at all in China, um, but you know that she sort of hope for some reward, um, either from the marriage or from her position. She was very, seemed very proud of being the, you know, young wife of the head of the mission. And, you know, I, I think, I, I think her kind of attitude could have been the same as, as a, 
a young wife of a banker in the you know Midwest in 1910. You know that she would be proud of her position in her community and and take that as her identity. Um, and then you know steadily, it, it, uh, as the story progresses, she realizes that actually that um, you know that kind of identity really doesn't have any. Um, depth to it, and and she needs to stand on her own two feet. Um, so I, I think that's a very, you know, a transition to a very modern perspective in the end. Um, I get I the impression to... that even at the very beginning, she's a little bit more free thinking than the Reverend. I mean, he changes over the course of the novel, also. But in that yeah. initial scene where we uh, where we meet them, it turns out that she has lost. At least two babies. It's not clear, mm-hmm. and she's she yeah. has this one little boy, and then she's pregnant mm-hmm. again, and she's quite comfortable talking about it. And she doesn't. She's she's. It's said that she's disappointed because she tries to talk mm-hmm. to him, and he's clearly uncomfortable with anything. Even though the two of them are standing there alone and they're married, it's right, right, um, exactly. I think that she is more the the uh, the voice of, of sort of a more natural modern. Um, you know, relationship that she would like to have. Um, but he is older and he is, um, you know, she sees it as, oh, well, he's he's occupied with, uh, you know, um, things of the spirit, and that's why he's not able to discuss this. But I think I think the reader is meant to know it's also because he's just incredibly stiff and, you know, nothing in his background has prepared him to have a conversation with a woman about her miscarriage, you know, or even if she is his wife. <laughs> you know, they just are very, very different. They've been trained in a very different way um, mm-hmm. from each other. Um, but she's hungry for his companionship and um, for something, you know, a real connection with him. And, and there's just layers of, of formality that he, he kind of carries with him. So, tell us, because we're going to move on to him in just a second. So, but tell us yeah. a little bit about Grace's relationship with Mei Lin, because that's also a very important part of the story. I mean, in a sense, I get the impression that Mei Lin fills in to some extent for the reverend and what he's not able to provide. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think of Maylin as sort of a mother figure to to Grace. Um, she's sort of the very prag- pragmatic, um, plain speaking, uh, says her mind um, caretaker of this young woman who is uh, overwrought and is facing one sort of miserable challenge after the next. And um, the more sort of Grace. Um, is you know kind of getting lost in her own confusions about how to to deal with her fate. Um, the sturdier and more straightforward Maylin becomes, um, and um, you know I you could say that's a, a Chinese pragmatism. I, there feels like to me there feels like there's a lot of sort of Midwestern um, American uh, pragmatism in this book as well, and and I could almost imagine her as sort of a sturdy. Uh, Midwestern grandmother saying, you know, pull up your socks and uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I liked having them sort of be in opposition to each other in this way. And the the flightier and um, the more impractical Grace is, the more uh, Maylin is her opposite. So um, I like playing them off of each other in that way. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the Reverend. Um, he's, at least in the beginning, as you say, he's very stiff and he's very, as I can imagine, um, missionaries probably to some extent still are, but particularly we're in the Victorian 
uh, sort of early 20th century period. He's very um, forthright about his religion. He's very convinced that all he has to do essentially is say, I'm here to represent the Lord Jesus and Mm -hmm. angels are going to come down or (laughs) they're all going to come and say, okay, yeah, let's tell us more, you know, this kind of thing. Right, exactly. Um, Pardon me. He... um, I think that that's all true about him, um, and I, I do know some people have thought, oh, he's not as appealing in some way as Grace, but I, I think I think nobody could say that he's not, um, you know, charismatic in some way, or he's forceful as a character, and um, he certainly believes in what he believes in, and um, sort of expects everybody else to fall into line. And um, you know, I think that is typical of, of that era and somebody of his standing. Um, he's not—he doesn't—he's not a wealthy person. He didn't come from that. He—he he came from farmers, and so he, um, you know, has that sort of practical background. Um, but he does have a great sense of entitlement. And, you know, as a sort of a white male in that setting, he just expects things to go the way he expects them to go. And, um, but I don't think um, he's without charm, hopefully. Um, I, his sense of humor sort of, I hope, leaks through. And um, he has sort of a wry sense of humor that um, he particularly uses in relation to his manservant, Acho. Um, he is always sort of chiding Acho for being too worried and being, um, um, you know, just uh, a stickler in some ways. Um, and the Reverend is trying to get Acho to loosen up a little bit and, and uh, find some humor in, in certain moments. Um, but so I, I, you know, I hope that the Reverend has, has a kind of charm. He, he um, does crazy things like he reads um, while traveling on muleback through the, um, you know, this desolate uh, sort of dangerous countryside. He is, has his nose in the book um, much of the time, and he's reading um, the Romantics, and he's reading Shakespeare, and he's reading Dickens, and he's reading them aloud, even though it really probably makes no sense to the Chinese, and um, even at certain points starts to read um, the Chinese poets as well. Um, so, you know, I think he, he sort of fancied himself a, uh, um, a Renaissance man and, uh, you know, a man who could kind of tackle anything, which, um, you know, is, is admirable in certain ways. So. Yeah, I do get the impression. I mean, one of the things that I really like about these characters is that they are not just one thing, you know. So Grace, on the surface, is very much this kind of fluttery um, almost helpless girl, and yet she does have this inner strength that comes out as the book progresses and is even there to some extent in the beginning whenever she's called on to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Reverend, although he does project this image of himself as very stiff and very proper and very religious is and very strong, um, he does have a kind of, I, I don't think we could call it weakness, but maybe a softer side in which... You know, he obviously is tender towards grace, and he has this love of romantic poetry, which comes out even Mm -hmm. in the initial scene that I've read, where he almost apologizes for it, but Mm -hmm. he's describing the landscape in this very poetic Mm -hmm. way. Um, So I did find him charming. Um, Uh Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, You know, he he is an entirely made-up character, 
And yet, um, one thing that led me to write this book was that um, when my parents were moving out of the home I grew up in um, to move into a retirement home, I took it upon myself to read my grandfather's journals and um, reports that he sent back to the congregational board in Boston um, from his from the mission in Shaanxi Province. And uh, and so I read all of these, you know, many many pages, and I got a strong sense of his voice and of his character. And there's on the one side, he was um, a, uh, you know, community builder uh, who just was steeped in all of the practicalities of how to, uh, you know, bring people into the church and how to build a hospital and roads and all of that. And and some of that stuff was quite dry and kind of boring. Um, He also was very much an evangelist and wrote um, very openly about you know, bringing bringing people to Christ um, with complete conviction, um, and then there was this other side of him, which was um, sort of a humorous or um, had a wry sense of humor when talking about the Chinese, and a great admiration for the countryside and the people and the beauty of the landscape there. And uh, it is eer- it, it is as he described it, sort of eerily beautiful and. Um, I got a sense of his sort of the Victorian cadence of his voice and um, his character, and you know, I was I wasn't prepared to like him particularly, um, but I ended up liking very much his um, the sort of the more literary side of what he wrote about uh, the setting and the poetry of you know the people there. So um, I I think that that ended up influencing uh, the Reverend, who could be these opposite things at once, sort of a stiff bureaucrat in some ways, but also a, a kind of a very much a romantic. So. Yes, I thought it was interesting that you said that you start with the setting, because that was something that particularly struck me about the novel, is that the, the landscape of northeast, northwest China, where I have never been, um, mm-hmm. is so beautifully described that I felt that I was in the middle of it, and it echoes in many ways what's going on in the characters' lives, that Mm-hmm. There's this drought which has been going on for a year, and so everything is kind of brown and desiccated, and it becomes steadily more so as the novel progresses because the drought continues. Yeah. Um, did you get that from his his diaries? Is that where that comes from? Um, I got a sense of the sort of the starvation and the um, squalor and the real you know grave um, challenges faced by the people there, and. Um, my grandfather went out into hamlets and villages where he was the first white man they'd ever seen, and you know he records um, the poverty that he saw there. Um, on the other hand, he also sort of describes the kind of languid beauty of um, these wheat fields that are swaying back and forth, and I'm a little confused by that because it also was a time of drought, um, but I think that there may have been some reprieves or something because he also talks about it, you know, where it just sounds um, sort of bucolic and, and really beautiful. Um, but the setting for my book is more, you know, desolate, and and as you said, it, that does reflect sort of the intensity of the story as it progresses. Um, and I have never been there either, but I did have um, always these photos that were around my household, black and white or daguerreotypes, 
of um, that setting, and it was always this sort of gray, dusty landscape, um, tree, um, leafless trees, and um, rocky uh, stream beds, and that sort of thing. Um, with my grandfather pictured on mule back, or um, my uh, father as a boy um, in that setting, and and uh, you know something about that, and those images sort of seeped in, I think. Um, and gave me a, a feeling for that place, um, or at least a feeling for the China that I imagined of, of that time, a sort of a more allegorical China. Um, so. so let's talk just a little bit about the plot. Um, as mm-hmm. my listeners are accustomed to by now, I don't go too far into the plot because uh, we want them to buy the book and find out the details. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. there is this very important thing that happens right in Chapter 1, and... Um, yeah. So uh, when the story opens, as, as I read in the introduction, um, the Reverend and Grace and Acho and Meilin have just gone to a vacation cottage uh, that the Reverend and Acho have built the year before, which is outside of the town where the mission is located. And so it's even more into this sort of desolate area that leads into the, the area, I assume, which is now Xinjiang, and then into Inner Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it starts out with it. So you can't really call it bucolic because the area is so um, arid. But mm-hmm. it right. is, you know, it's it's a nature scene in effect, and and they're there for relaxation. And the first thing that happens is they notice a cow where no cow should be, and it's mm-hmm. a very healthy looking cow. Um, for an area that has been under a drought for a long time. And so they go to investigate the cow. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's Grace, uh, the, the two servants are in the house getting ready. And so it's Grace and the Reverend and their little boy who is small, two, three, I'm not sure right. exactly, uh, how old he is. And so they take him to pet the cow and it's, you know, this very sweet um, family scene. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, come uh, Mongolian nomads. Uh, and before the end of the scene they have gone off with the little boy and Mm -hmm. this precipitates the next really the rest of the story I mean everything else in the Mm -hmm. story is the reaction to this this tragedy of the the kidnapping of their child so um, can you tell us as much as you want to about um, how these two characters and then the other characters in the novel react to this incident well, um, you know, it's a drastic thing to have happen, and, um, you know, it brings out the most sort of dire feelings in all of them, in a way, um, and I think they each respond um, in ways that sort of reveals their character um, right at first, and then they each continue to respond in ways that reveal their characters, um, but in different ways. Um, they, they evolve. Um, so, for example, the reverend, you know, his reaction is to do something. You know, he sets off immediately in search of the boy. Um, you know, he is going to go search this countryside high and low, and which he basically continues to do for the rest of the book um, and uh, for much of the book. And I don't want to give away too much, but that is the way he would handle it is, um, you know, he's going to solve this problem. And so he, he does that. And Grace's reaction is, is far more emotional. And, um, you know, as a woman of that time and that era and in that setting, 
um, she ends up more confined and not able to, you know, she can't hop on a horse and go chasing after the bandits herself. Um, so her story becomes a more internal story. And um, then over the course of the year of the novel, she's um, more confined to the mission compound as she uh, ends up giving birth to their second child. Um, and so I would say that it sort of, you know, brings out the parameters of what, um, you know, what is expected of them and how they can respond. Um, and uh, Cho and Mei Lin are both um, also quite pragmatic, and yet um, they want to help this couple. They are good-hearted, um, but each of them have their own sort of reaction to what really is the likelihood of, of retrieving this child. Um, they know the countryside out there. They know you know, sort of what we're dealing with, um, with robbers uh, who come upon you. Um, and so um, <clears throat> Ah Cho, who is a very strong Christian convert, um, remains an optimist about this. And Mei Lin, who is not a Christian convert, but believes in the old sort of religious ways, um, is the sort of the most pragmatic response of all of theirs. Um, so, I, you know, I'd say that right from the start, it sort of reveals who these characters are. Um, yeah, I think it does. And it's, it ends up effect, it, revealing not only their characters, but it also affects the larger community because the Reverend is off chasing um, the, the bandits. He doesn't, he can mm-hmm. not spend as much time um, leading the community as he did in the beginning. Right. Right. Um, so it does, and you know, they're trying to help Grace, and they're they're trying to cope with the the situation. And yes, he um, he becomes obsessed and more and more myopic. And um, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but he um, uh, you know loses his uh, standing in in a way, or just starts to. Um, sacrifices his his role as someone who is thinking, you know, trying to think about the full community as he focuses in on, um, you know, this one tragedy and and actually, um, you know, his role in the tragedy. So, um, Which is he, understandable, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure he, you know, it's his child. He hasn't protected the child. And so mm-hmm. it's it's a very normal parental response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He turns inward and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, so, you know, and Grace does that at first, um, but then without giving away too much, it's interesting, a different side of her character comes out, mm-hmm. um, you know, where each of them is, is sort of wrestling with how much they can, um, you know, think about others and how much they exclusively just think about themselves. And, uh, you know, this is sort of... Um, an illustration of, of, you know, what goes on for um, foreigners coming in to uh, this kind of a setting and, and, you know, how much are foreigners able to really grasp what's going on around them? You know, how blind are, are they? And, uh, you know, it, it affects everything that they are not quite able to um, take in the realities around them fully. Yes, even to the extent of um, those closest to them. I mean, it turns out that they have really very little idea of what's going on inside Acho and Meilin, even. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a nice touch, I think, because it is very difficult if you're a foreigner, or even a, a knowledgeable foreigner, to mm-hmm. really understand what's going on um, inside someone else's culture. Right, right. And that's also just the colonial... 
um, you know, arrogance of, of sort of not really fully seeing your servants as, as full people. And, um, you know, what, what, where, do they have families? Do they have children? You know, where, where do they, where do they go when they're not taking care of you? Um, and so none of those kinds of questions really occur to the Reverend or to Grace, particularly after they face this tragedy. They just become more and more self-involved, which, you know, serves to sort of magnify what would be the dangers of being, uh, you know, in that colonial position in the first place. Um, they just turn inward and just focus on themselves. So, so let's skip over um, the rest mm-hmm. of the plot um, and yeah. go to the end, because mm-hmm. uh, I didn't actually notice this the first time I read through the book, but as I was reviewing it in preparation for the interview, I read the end, the beginning and then I read the end, and I realized that the end beautifully echoes the beginning. It doesn't repeat it, but it, um, all of the themes that are there in chapter one get picked up and resolved in, at the ending. Um, I understand that there's a passage that you particularly wanted to read from the ending, uh, which I would love to hear because, or I would love our listeners to hear because I have read the opening that is um, then echoed at the end. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'd love to. Um, I actually have in mind two paragraphs, and they're a couple of pages apart from each other, but I think they offer some um, sense of that, the echoing from the beginning, which your, which your listeners will have heard. So um, I thought I'd share them. Um, excuse me. Um, so this is um, near the end, and I'm not even going to set the stage because I don't want to give away too much, so I'll just read it. So here we go. Standing in the river of dust... Grace held the pouch close to her chest under the great fur. She had learned from Mei Lin that each thing carried with it a life and a destiny that could not be ignored. She had learned to listen for portents sent on the wind and offered by the smallest of signs. Sometimes the future spoke to us with smoke on the horizon or with the dance of a handkerchief fluttering on the wind or a skull tossed down on firm soil. Each person and thing had its say and was of consequence. There was no way to undo the past or to correct the way things had gone, but attention must be given to the secrets whispered along the way. Ghosts spoke to us all the time, if we were only willing to listen. Not to do so was hubris. She could see that now and suspected that the Reverend understood it as well. And then um, a page or so later... The harsh land had won out in the end, harsh but striking and filled with a strange history and life that could not always be understood, but simply had to be accepted. The hills where the reverend had traveled in search of their son rose in the distance, shadowed and purple. Ghosts were everywhere out there. They spread a lonely blanket over the landscape, as thick and impenetrable as the fur over her shoulders." They nestled deep into their ghostly sorrows, as she did into the heavy hide. That's lovely. Thank you. Um, I think we should probably explain that, um, at least in the perspective of the Chinese who are encountering, um, in many cases, Christianity for the first time, they see it as a religion of ghosts. They refer to uh, Jesus as the ghost man, or actually they refer to the reverend as the ghost man, Mm -hmm because he communicates with Jesus and they hear about the Holy Ghost. So when they're referring to 
this, these constant, I mean, there are Chinese ghosts also, obviously, but sure. in here, this is kind of a, a reference back to the understanding of, of Christianity as a religion of ghosts. Right, right. And they call the Reverend Ghost Man, which goes back all the way to the earliest scene in the book, which I'm not going to mention, but it's, um, uh, you know, he's referred to that way, and also because he's white and, um, and you know, mysterious and sort of appears in their village in this way and um, is tied to mortality. So um, Right, that's right. Yeah. White is the color of mourning in China. Yeah, yeah and uh, to life and death and all of that. And so he has that kind of a um, <clears throat> larger-than-life role um, there. So so what is it that you would like readers to take away from River of Dust? What would you like them to notice most? Hmm. That's a lovely question. Um, well, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I want them to enjoy a story. That's one thing. I am actually have come over the years through writing these many, you know, manuscripts, come to respect um, storytelling and um, believe that um, really good storytelling can go absolutely hand-in-hand hand with, you know, literary aspirations, meaning um, interest in language. And so um, I appreciate a story that helps the reader just want to know what happens next. Um, and so I want them to enjoy themselves. That's one thing. Um, and become engrossed in this other world. Um, and then, of course, there are larger themes that are, you know, about life and death and about um, religion and about um, sort of a colonial perspective. Um, you know, the books that influenced me um, as I read this, um, I had read Somerset Mom's The Painted Veil long before I wrote this, and then I read it again um, shortly before writing River of Dust, and, and of course, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and, um, you know, I, thinking so much about America's role in the world even today, and I just think it's something that we wrestle with as um white first world people um and so all of those kinds of thoughts are are around flitting around in my mind as i wrote the book um and so i hope they might come to mind for the reader as well but you know first and foremost i want them to be engrossed in a good story and uh, to really appreciate these characters and um you know or enjoy them um and uh you know i tried to make them as complex or as interesting as i could so those are some thoughts. That's great. Um, is there anything that you would like to tell listeners that I didn't cover in my questions? No, I think this is wonderful. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, thoroughly have enjoyed this so much. It's it's a you know it's an absolute treat to get to talk about this work, and um, you know, to, to um, writing is a lonely job, and then to get to finally come out and share it is is just a thrill. So I really really appreciate it. And I understand you have quite a tight schedule of book, uh, books, short, how should I say this, bookshop appearances and uh-huh, you know, talks and events and yeah. so on. So people should go to your website. I'll give the address in just yes. a moment and find out where you're going to be. Um, Absolutely. That would be lovely. I would love to meet folks. Um, yes, I am doing, I did a number of things in the spring when the book first came out. And now I am doing more um, in the fall, and um, a paperback will be coming out in the spring, and I'll be doing some more events then. And, um, you know, I really love talking to to readers and fellow writers about what we do. Great. And you just turned in another manuscript, as I understand. Tell us a little bit about that one. 
Um, well, this is actually a novel that I first wrote before I wrote River of Dust, and then um, after River of Dust was out of my hands, I went back and revised it. And it um, it's going to sound utterly different, um, but um, it, because it's contemporary, it's set in 2011, and it's actually set in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I currently live. Um, and it uh, it's it's a dramatic story that it tells the story of a cast of characters here in town. That I like to think of it a little bit like um, John Altman's um, Robert Altman's um, Nashville, the movie, which tried to capture a whole city by following a cast of characters that intersect each other over the course of a short period of time, and. Um, so this story has everyone in it from the real estate tycoon who lives in the wealthy neighborhood um, and uh, to the uh, tattooed, mulleted um, street kid who is homeless and living by the river here and sort of everybody in between, um, especially focusing on two women who right at the start of the book have their marriages uh, fall apart for various or for two different unexpected reasons. And uh, over the course of the book, um, those marriages get resolved in different ways. Um, but meanwhile, these characters weave in and out of each other's lives um, in very unexpected ways. So um, it's trying to capture the feeling of a whole city and also the kind of economic range between uh, the haves and the have-nots and, and everybody in between. So um, I was, I think I was very uh, thinking about the Occupy movement at the time and all of that and uh, wanted to see what would happen if some of these folks bumped into each other the, on the opposite uh, ends, the first per, the 1% and the 99%. So um, I'd say it's quite contemporary. Sounds really interesting. And are you starting a new book now or is it, are you? I um well, literally, I passed that in about a week and a half ago. So um, I'm not quite sure what I'm working on next. Um, there's the temptation to go back and work on the other three quarters of what was Sleepwalking to China, the, the that story. Um, and I know my editor at one point mentioned, you know, me doing a follow-up to River of Dust, um, mm-hmm. somehow miraculously following some of those characters. And um, I'm going to, um, when the dust settles on some of these events this month, um, I'm going to start focusing on the next project. So, Do you, um, I mean, do ideas just kind of come to you or how do you go about write, thinking about what you're going to write next? Well, you know, it's funny. A lot of times I've ended up writing stories set in a place where I've previously lived. And so, for example, um, I wrote a, a novel called West Philly that was set in uh, West Philadelphia. And then I wrote it once I moved to Richmond. Um, I wrote a novel set in New York City, and that was after I moved to West Philadelphia. In other words, it's some way of me digesting a place and a time and um, filling uh, a setting that I know well with um, these imagined characters. And, um, you know, usually there's some conundrum that I'm trying to, to work through. Um, and, you know, for example, this new novel, which is called um, River City, the one I've just passed in that's about Richmond, um, it was partly because I just kept hearing the stories all around me of these marriages that were imploding in kind of the most outrageous of ways, um, just uh, sort of one crazy thing happening after the next. And, you know, meanwhile, the Occupy movement was was taking over the plaza downtown, and it just seemed like a very fertile time for... Um, 
uh, sort of extreme things to be happening. And, you know, you could say that about any time, but for some reason that's what I took note of at that moment. So, um, you know, it's, you, have to, you have to come up with some question that you're trying to solve through the course of writing a book, and, uh, and that's what, you know, usually helps me decide what to, what to write. Great. Well, we can't yeah. uh, interview you for the Richmond novel because it's not historical. But uh, if exactly. you do, <laughs> if Absolutely. you do go back and write this, I second. will. I, have to, I will. You know, there's that. You know, it all started with that 14th century short story. That now, that's the one I would love know. to read because you know I'm a medievalist. So as soon as you right. said 14th century, I was there. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, you uh, you would be able to correct that story many times over because it was it was definitely more imagined than researched. So, um, but anyway, it's fun to fun to be able to do that. Well, if you ever do go back to it, you have my emails. <laughs> so yeah, I'd be happy. We'll be in touch on Goodreads anyway. So yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate um, you know your listeners being interested in historical fiction and these kinds of um, you know questions that we share together. Um, and what makes a book work well, and um, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Virginia Pye, author of River of Dust. You can find out more about her at www.virginiapie.com. That's P-Y-E. She's traveling around a lot at the moment, that's September 2013, talking to bookstores. So if you check her site, you may have a chance to meet her in person. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Network, that's one word. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit my blog at blog.cplesley.com, that's C-P-L-E-S-L-E-Y where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.